Okay, so as you can probably see, I look rather disorganized up here with vast amounts of paper that I'm going to try and make some sense of in the next period. Probably about 20 hours of teaching that I'm, I'm going to try and condense in some sort of skillful way. But what I want to talk about this afternoon or to reflect on are what are called in, the, in Pali the Brahma Viharas, or the four sublime abidings of boundless friendliness, boundless compassion, boundless joy, and boundless equanimity. I think these qualities describe the deepest potential we have as human beings for emotional and psychological freedom. They describe the most noble way of being in this world. In many ways, these qualities, I think, really describe the, the landscape of an awakened heart, an awakened mind. You've probably noticed, you know, that in the teachings we've offered so far over this week, you know, we often speak in terms of non-greed or non-hatred and non-delusion. And then we think about, well, what does that mean if we phrase that differently? I think what it means if we phrase that differently is actually the manifestation and the embodiment of these qualities of friendliness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. They're often described as being immeasurable. Immeasurable enough to embrace the entire world of events and experiences, including, of course, ourselves. Vihara, I think from, from the Pali, often refers to the place where we make our home the place of abiding, the place where we actually make the home of our heart. And there's some, some similarities in the discourse, particularly the metta discourse or sutta to the satipatthana discourse. When the Buddha says, when standing, walking, sitting, or lying down, let us establish well this mindfulness this, it is said, is the divine abiding. It's so important to understand the relationship, I think, between mindfulness and the pathways of cultivating these qualities. My own sense is that mindfulness devoid of these qualities is really not mindfulness at all. That mindfulness without this attitudinal commitment of befriending it's probably a kind of cold glare of attention. You know, the Buddha says that, you know, that this quality of befriending is the attitudinal basis of all meditative deepening. Um, these, are, these, are, these qualities or pathways of awakening, I think, are not spoken of nearly so much as pathways of insight, and it's often seen that pathways of insight are somehow separate than the development of these qualities, which I will hope to disprove 
this afternoon. If I could disprove that, I would feel quite successful in this talk. These qualities and the cultivation of these qualities is spoken about so explicitly in, in, the, in the foundational traditions. And as you know, or many of you might know, that there's this kind of ongoing discussion in the worlds of MBSR, MBCT, about just how explicit we can be about emphasizing these attitudes and these qualities. I don't know how long this discussion will go on, possibly long beyond my lifetime. Uh, some of you may have looked in the second edition of the Green Book, where the edition of the chapter that actually says, you know, these really are important, and then kind of left it there. <laughs> kind of left it there. They're really important, but we're not quite sure how we're going to communicate these attitudes and these qualities far more explicitly. Now, in the, in the, in the development of, of, of the Buddhist teaching, of course, over a very long period of time, you know, something also very strange did happen with these qualities where, as the teachings began to be written down and to be codified. They were kind of put under the umbrella of being a concentration practice. You know. And that's really how most Westerners have both inherited these pathways as a concentration practice, limited in scope, as a way just of concentrating the mind rather than as a pathway of awakening. And of course, we've also inherited what we think are quite a few mistranslations. Actually, we John would say more than we think this. John would say we have inherited mistranslations, and mostly we've inherited this phrase, loving kindness, which is very, very difficult phrase. And I, I think it is actually the phrase itself which is quite alienating for many people, because it's, it sounds to be a, a state, an, an emotional state, and certainly I could never ask someone who's living with chronic illness or chronic pain or abusive situations or histories of abuse to somehow say, you know, you should love this. No. It's, it, it is not. It, it immediately makes this pathway impossible. What I want to talk about this afternoon is how these are practices of insight, practices that liberate the heart, that are brought to fruition, that are unshakable, and that become an abiding, the place where our mind rests, the place where our acts and thoughts and choices arise from, the abiding or the ground of our mind that then directs how we live and how we relate in this world. Now, if they are to be insight practices or practices of awakening, then these pathways and their cultivation have to have something to do with addressing what entangles and binds us. They have to have something to do with addressing the, the forces of greed, the forces of ill will, and the forces of confusion. And so I would like to try this afternoon to make this relationship between these cultivations and pathways and those 
ties that keep us, that, that create and recreate suffering and distress. So I'd like to start with just reflecting on the first of these. By the way, these are interwoven qualities. Kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. These are very much interwoven qualities. And John has translated a very lovely piece from Longchenpa. He says that out of the soil of friendliness grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, watered by the tears of joy and sheltered under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. It's so important to see those, those interwoven the interwoven nature of these qualities, that although we address them separately and we may reflect on them separately, um, we may even cultivate them separately, they are all part of one landscape of the heart. They are a way of almost reteaching us something that we already know. We've all had moments, I'm sure, in our lives of unhesitating friendliness offered to us and that we have offered to others. We've probably all had moments of unhesitating compassion in the face of suffering and distress. Perhaps we have received it from others. Perhaps we have met others' distress in this way. We've all had moments of sometimes quite unexpected joy you know, when all of the chaos and the confusion and the distress has a little break in the clouds and we feel really deeply touched and deeply appreciative of something often not very dramatic, something quite simple in the moment. We probably have all had moments of, of equanimity, the capacity to really stand in the middle of all things, in the midst of our life without being broken or by shattered or shattered. And of course, the, the great gift, again, when we stress this over and over again, of the great gift of the Buddha was to recognize that these are seeds of potentiality that live in every human heart. We're not trying to import something that is alien or remote for us. In a way, we're learning to take care of those seeds, to nurture them, and to bring them to fruition till they are immeasurable. So they are trainings. They are trainings. I don't know if any of you remember some years ago, there was a, a plane that um, crash-landed in the Hudson River in New York, and it was one of those, you know, fortunate plane crashes where everybody survived. And they did a little bit of a sort of autopsy afterwards about people's reactions when the plane crashed. And they described, the you know, some people reported about being frozen in terror, which is very understandable, very human. Uh, some people reported seeing people stampeding for the exit doors, crushing the frail and the vulnerable underfoot. Uh, some people reported people going up through the aisles and doing their best to help others, the frail and the vulnerable, off the plane. 
And, you know, I'm not saying this in any judgmental way because we could, we could probably see ourselves in any one of those responses. We'd probably like to be the person who went up the aisle helping the frail and the vulnerable. As probably the kind of person we'd, we'd prefer to be rather than one stampeding the children underfoot. Um, <laughs> and we don't know. In a way, we, we don't know. But... In learning to incline the mind towards these qualities, we are probably more likely to be the person who cares for the frail and the vulnerable. So we are reteaching ourselves something, and at the same time, we are really focusing, and this is really, uh, you know, requires as, this training in these qualities requires as much rigor and as much attention and as much dedication as a training in mindfulness. So we're reteaching and we are learning. And I love the bit of the poem by Galway Cannell that. Sharon Salzberg quotes in her book where he says, the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. And I think this is really the, the pathway of developing these qualities. It is almost reteaching our minds, reteaching our hearts, their capacity for the loveliness and for very profound understanding. So as I mentioned, if these are to be practices of awakening, if they are to be immeasurable, if they are to be unshakable, then they must have addressed in very real ways the, the very powers that actually create distress of greed and of hatred and delusion, which we've spoken about at some length. Before I go there, I just want to I miss something. Um, Although we have inherited these as concentration practices, and as concentration practices, if you were using, the, say, the practice of metas, we've been engaging in, in it here. If you were using this as a concentration practice, you, you would use the phrases in a very joined-up way, you know, not making any breaks in the phrases, just a constant in a repetition, articulation of the phrases. And this does indeed focus and collect the mind. And so as a concentration practice, I certainly don't want to entirely dismiss its value. Because I think also as a concentration practice, it does almost provide this protective element that we also find within sati or mindfulness. And as a concentration practice, it can be a guardian of the mind, a guardian of the heart, particularly in times of obsession and rumination, where thought has so taken over, you know, where there's just such a waterfall of thinking that just kind of drags the mood and the body further and further down. Because it's just, a, I think it's just a simple reality that we don't think two thoughts at the same time. 
So it is probably far more useful for us to quite intentionally place ourselves, our attention in thoughts, and the phrases are thoughts, quite intentionally place our attention in thoughts that serve our well-being, rather than unconsciously place our attention in thoughts which actually are just constantly undermining well-being. So as concentration practices, I, I, I think there, there is a value in, in approaching this pathway for periods of time or in some moments as a way of kind of reestablishing a sense of, of balance and well-being. But as insight practices, as we've tried to suggest here, the phrases are really anchors and they're, they're teaching us to listen inwardly. They're teaching us to pause and to listen inwardly to the world of our responses to the, to the phrases, but also to simply learn to abide within what those phrases are actually representing of, in terms of possibility. So let me speak just about the insight aspect of metta, which we have given time to exploring over these days. Translating this as befriending, and, and I really stress the verb form of this, being a friend to, but more befriending whatever is present. And I think about how then metta and mindfulness are going so closely hand in hand, because we can see the, the impulse or the momentum of mindfulness is to turn towards the moment. And the momentum of metta is to stand near to or to befriend that which has been illuminated by mindfulness. So these are really going hand in hand. The, the insight commitment of metta, it is a commitment to uprooting ill will. As an insight practice, its primary concern are the forces of aversion, of ill will in all its forms as they arise. And we can have plenty of it, I'm sure you've recognized. You know, this whole spectrum of ill will, of impatience, of frustration, of jealousy, resentment. I even think of fantasy as a kind of ill will because it's an abandonment of the moment you know, the condemnations, the blame, the shame. Meta practices is dedicated to uprooting the forces of ill will one moment at a time. So it's learning to liberate the moment from ill will. The cultivation of metta as an intentional practice is the intention and the choice of where we are going to make the home of our mind, where we're going to make the home of our heart in any moment. Whether we're going to make the home of our mind within that landscape of ill will, or whether we're going to make the home of our mind within this intentional willingness to befriend. Intentional willingness to befriend. Compassion is the word that we use most frequently in English. The Pali is more nuanced. 
and the Pali for compassion is much more in this, this kind of pairing of words of anukampa karuna. Anukampa describes empathy. The trembling or the quivering of the heart in the face of distress. This requires mindfulness. We don't tremble or feel empathy from a distance. Empathy arises within a relationship of intimacy, of being close to. It is that capacity for stillness to be able to see the human story of distress, of pain, and simply to feel the heart tremble in response. The karuna part really much more describes what is born of that empathy. The reaching out, the commitment to healing, the commitment to bringing distress to an end wherever it can be ended. It describes actually that movement outwardly to embrace, to care, to attend, to offer what is possible to offer. And even in the face of distress, it has no answer. The karuna part is that commitment to remaining steadfast and present. So I think what is the insight part of compassion, if we use that word? What is the insight part of anukampa karuna? And I think it's clearly concerned with understanding our own relationship to dukkha. Because the Buddha says, you know, there are so many reactions to dukkha that are familiar to us, that really serve no purpose except to perpetuate dukkha. How often distress in our life, though, or in the world around us, sometimes it's met with anger, isn't it? This shouldn't be happening. Who do we blame? Whose fault is it? Sometimes distress in ourselves, distress in the world, is met with resignation or despair. There's nothing I can do about this. It's how life is. It's how I am, this perpetual sentence of bleakness and incapacity. I think there's another reaction to distress that is not so mentioned because it wasn't so much part of people's psychology 2,600 years ago, which is the reaction of guilt and shame that somehow, you know, I deserve this distress. It's because of all the things I've done wrong or because of the inadequate person I am. And the Buddha says, you know, when we look at these, this familiar landscape of reactivity to dukkha, to distress, he said what we see clearly is both the reactivity is distress in itself, but that it also compounds distress. And he suggests there are other ways, more skillful ways, more liberating ways, and there's a whole range of them. But of course, the most obvious one is compassion. It's karuna anukampa, our capacities for empathy, our commitment to uprooting the causes of distress in greed, in hatred, and in delusion. And certainly what I have come to see in my life 
in, a, in, in exploring my own relationship to distress over all the years of my life, I see that it is our, it is our relationship to dukkha that really comes to define who we believe ourselves to be as a human being and how we live our life. That if our relationship to dukkha is one of fear and incapacity and denial, mostly we end up living a very agitated life of avoidance, of resistance, of abandonment, of pushing away. If we find within ourselves the capacities for befriending and the capacities for empathy, then our life looks very different. We find ourselves willing to, to turn outwardly and to open inwardly and to really see distress and as distress and ask what it needs and ask what it needs in this moment. The third of, the, of these sublime abidings is mudita translates as appreciative joy. Appreciative joy. Cultivating the heart's capacity for gladness. This is a quality that is often overlooked and really often hardly even spoken of, but is so essential. How many of you here have you know, found yourself so given to caring and to serving and to looking after that you find yourself exhausted. Or that sometimes, you know, the heart just becomes a little bit too raw in turning towards the immensity of suffering in our world. And our capacity for joy is often forgotten. And it is so important, the very place of joy is really to, to learn to balance, learn to balance compassion, learn to balance, learning to, to sustain that capacity for gladness in the midst of distress and in the midst of caring, in the midst of attending. And there's many, you know, certainly in the Buddhist tradition, there, there's many different dimensions of joy that are spoken about. You know, the, the joy of contentment, the joy of appreciation, the joy of celebration, the joy in seeing the difficult fall away, the joy of being able to rest in stillness. And Medita is very much concerned with particularly this quality of appreciating the goodness in others and in ourselves appreciating what is well in others and in ourselves. And John has translated from a Sinhalese text this, this, these wonderful, uh, I think, uh, words that really articulate this. I think they, they go, you know how we, we've used phrases in the meta practice, these are phrases in the cultivation of appreciative joy. How wonderful you are in your being I delight that you are here. May your happiness deepen and your good fortune continue. I have to confess, when I first heard these phrases, I, I had a little, what do I call it, cringe inwardly. 
I sort of thought, well, that's okay, you know, for, you know, little kids, you know, and, and uh, you know, fluffy puppies and, you know, things like that. I could say that quite easily. You know, I, I, I have a new grandson, you know, and I, I find myself constantly in this place of appreciative joy, you know. Whatever this baby does is wonderful, you know. <laughs> he pees in my eye, he pukes down my shoulder, you know, he feels his nappy, you know. Everything he does is wonderful, you know. I, everything he does is so well done, you know. Well done. And, and it, I just realized at some point, you know, what would it be like for me to go into the world like that? <laughs> I mean, I would hardly feel that if somebody else did those things to me, you know, and quite rightly, perhaps so. There are boundaries after all. But, but I just, but the sense of it is, is just this unbounded appreciation, you know, this unbounded joyfulness in the, the wellness and, and the delight in another being. This is actually so important, you know, I think it's actually so evident from research, the way that we're so hardwired, you know, to highlight and focus on what is broken and imperfect, you know, how that, you know, just is the propensity of the mind, is to highlight what is broken and imperfect. And it's like seizing upon the fragment of a person, isn't it? And then mistaking that fragment to be the whole. And, you know, building the narrative upon seizing upon that fragment. You know, you may have seen it in your life outside of here. You may have seen it in your life here, you know. The person who, who, has, who sneezes too much, you know. Oh, it's a sneezer. <laughs> we might see them ten years later, and the moment we see them, they're the sneezer. <laughs> You know, it sees upon a fragment and the fragment becomes a whole. And don't we just do this inwardly too? We seize upon a fragment of our own being and build an identity and an image out of it. This is who we are. So appreciative joy is not something that is, you know, mushy or, 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 or you know, saccharine. It's countering this tendency to, to build, uh, to forsake people, to abandon people through seizing upon a fragment and forgetting, not seeing even the wholeness of another person. Think about turning those phrases around. How wonderful I am in my being. I delight that I'm here. May my happiness deepen and my good fortune continue. How does that sit with you? To be able to just offer that inwardly, unconditionally, not, you know, I delight that I'm here, but I really should be like this, you know, and, and I, I should change that, and then, then, uh, then I th might think I might be, how wondrous it is that I'm here. How much it is just to, to appreciate our, our place in the world, our place in this earth, our capacity for wholeness, our capacity for freedom, despite all the difficulties, just that sense of appreciation of our efforts, our sincerity, our perseverance. This is quite important, actually. 
Now, what is joy as an insight practice? What is it really an antidote to? What is it meant to uproot? And there's two areas it's meant to uproot. One is, is craving, actually. You know, we see the success of craving as being a logical substitute for joy and appreciation. We think this is, you know, we believe that, that happiness lives is posited in objects and events and experiences, and if we manage to get them, we will be happy and there will be some joy in our life. Of course, then, we pursue the world. Where does craving come from? It's such an important question to consider. Where does craving come from? From where else but from a sense of insufficiency, a culture of lack, and a culture of inner deprivation, upon often which we have built a sense of identity, that I'm not enough, I don't have enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy. And so how are we going, how in confusion do we think that we're going to solve that, except by becoming someone who is more lovable and worthy and perfect and successful, except by getting the things that are somehow going to, to soothe that aching sense of there being something missing within ourselves. The cultivation of appreciative joy uh, uh, as a pathway you know, really does ask that question, what in this moment is lacking? But it's much deeper than that. It's a returning to a, a sense of our own potentiality as human beings for wakefulness, for sufficiency, to be free from there being any sense of being broken and lacking and inadequate. So the first, I think the first domain of insight of joy is, is really addressing this power of craving which is actually always an abandonment, isn't it? It's an abandonment of ourselves. It's an abandonment of the moment that it, as it is. It is always taking us somewhere else, to something else, to some future potentiality, and of course, is unsuccessful. The thing I feel about, come to feel about craving is, you know, apart from all of its difficult consequences in the world, it just is operationally ineffective. I was saying there's something just very pragmatic about seeing craving as it is. It's just operationally ineffective. It just doesn't deliver. <laughs> You know, I mean, anything else in our life, if it was operationally ineffective, you know, if you had a phone that you tried to make a call on a hundred times and it never worked, <laughs> you know, you'd say, this is operationally ineffective. Maybe I should just give it up. You know, if you, if you had a broken down car, you know, you wouldn't sit in your broken down car for the next 10 years hoping that it's going to one moment miraculously work. You would give it up. And I sort of think there's a very pragmatic element to sort of the release of craving, simply if we could see it as being operationally ineffective. Just not delivering. We, we're, we're intelligent people. You know, we can make those assessments. We can make those discernments. You know. 
<laughs> so that, this is one dimension of cultivating joy, is to really uproot, to see the, the emptiness, the ineffectiveness of this power of craving and to, to actually abandon pathways of abandonment. To abandon pathways of abandonment. To relinquish pathways of abandonment. But the other insight aspect of, of joy, the cultivation of joy, is something which is addressing, which is something much more subtle in this tradition. And, and John was speaking about this last night when he was talking about the distortions, you know, the, the, the perversions, the seeing of an abiding independent self where us being an abiding independent self. Whereas when we more closely examine what's going on inwardly, we actually see that I am a process, that self is a verb. But one of the ways in which that self-identity manifests in our life is actually so subtle and yet so powerful. And it's held within this Pali word of mana, which is actually translates as the conceit of self, which is actually quite awkward translation, the conceit of self. But what the conceit of self is actually referring to is the way that we go through life endlessly positioning ourselves in relationship to other selves as being better than somebody else, as being worse, inferior to somebody else, or as being the same as somebody else. Now, this actually doesn't sound that big a deal, does it? It, it can govern most of our actions and choices in this life, about whether we're silent, about whether we speak. Because you know, if we see ourselves as being lesser than others, what kind of relationship do we form? What kind of fears inhabit that identity? You know, the fear of being belittled, the fear of being judged, the fear of being visible, the fear of standing out, you know, the, the fear of being rejected, the fear of, no, I'm not as good as you, and it's not as competent as you, you know, I'm not as beautiful as you, you know, I'm not as able as you. It can govern so much of our choices about what we even attempt, you know. We may attempt very little because we're quite already convinced that, you know, we won't be good enough at it, we will fail. We may always choose, you know, to, to sit in the shadows in life, to, to be invisible because we will be so afraid of being seen to be lesser in some way. We will probably have a lot of self-judgment, you know, telling ourselves a story over and over again of inferiority or not good enough. You know, there's, there's the mana, the conceit of self, which is actually seen as being superior to you. You know, I'm actually better, you know. I wouldn't do something so stupid as that, you know. Uh, you know, we, we might see it on retreats, you know. Why aren't they washing their cup properly? I would do it much better, you know. Why, why aren't they plumping the pillow? You know, why aren't they, you know, actually seriously attending to the, you know, that dusting? You know, I would do it much better, you know. This constant kind of like highlighting imperfections in others in order to sustain almost a position of being better than. 
loftier than, more able than. And often in this kind of conceit and self, there's often a great deal of defensiveness. You know, how do I sustain my position? Often by more striving. You know, I have to strive more to sustain this position. I have to force more. I have to become more. I have to solidify this position of superiority. And then there's this, this other ground of being the same as. And it's not just that I'm the same as, as everybody else. It's like everybody is the same as everybody else. You know, it's this kind of sea of mediocrity. You know, all human beings are all stupid. They're all misguided. You know, they're all kind of pretending. They're all just, you know, putting on a front. You know, none of us can be awakened. Of course we can't, you know. None of us can possibly be free. You know, none of us can possibly develop boundless meta, you know, because we're so all the same, you know, just kind of all just struggling, our, fumbling our way through life, you know. It, it's a kind of, you know, that's, it, it's, it, it's a, uh, I hate to say it's a very British thing, but, but, <laughs> perhaps I don't know other cultures well enough. Appreciative joy is really meant to be questioning these identity formations, these ways of relating that are so built upon seizing upon fragments, that are so built upon solidifying this sense of self, because it's so important to see that all of the opposites of the Brahma-Viharas, you know, like aversion so solidifies the sense of self and other, isn't it? That, that um, fear of suffering so solidifies the sense of other that we are afraid of. You know, that, that the, the sense of comparing and craving so solidifies the sense of self and other. And this is where we get lost. This is what we believe to be a truth. And, you know, joy, the cultivation of appreciative joy, you'll notice the sense of the voice of selfing goes so low and the voice of othering goes so low. You know, in metta, the voice of selfing, the voice of othering becomes so quiet, we begin to see the transparency of all of that. Equanimity, Upeka, is the fourth of the Brahma-Viharas, and, and Chris is going to speak about this in a much more fulsome way tomorrow, so I'm just going to give it a touching glance so that I don't steal his talk. Equanimity upekka. Sometimes the Buddha uses this interchangeably with nibbana, with liberation. This is where there is the cooling of the fires of greed and hatred and delusion. The cessation of greed and hatred and delusion. Sometimes it's referred to as standing in the midst of all of this. Now I might point out that we already stand in the midst of all of this. There isn't anywhere else we can stand. You know, we stand in the midst of all of the events and experiences of our life. We stand in the midst of all of the people who are lovely and those who are unlovely. We stand in the midst of our own thoughts and emotions and bodies. We stand already in the midst of all of this. 
Equanimity is teaching us to stand in the midst of all of this with an unshakable poise, with an unshakable balance. A poise that is born of that uprooting of greed and hatred and delusion because this is what leads us to be overwhelmed. This is what leads our hearts to be shattered. So there's really three domains of equanimity and I, and I will really only touch upon them very, very briefly. One of them is called the worldly winds, you know, the winds of events, changing events and experiences of our life. You know, success and failure and praise and blame and pleasure and pain and gain and loss, fame, disrepute. The other domain of equanimity, which I think is deeply, deeply important, is this domain of human relationship. Because this is a place, isn't it, where equanimity most easily disappears, where it's most easily shattered in the face both of those that we love dearly and the face of those that we struggle with the most intensely. And equanimity, in a way, is a kind of cooling of enchantment, a cooling of the heart in the midst of all of those relationships. It doesn't mean loving less. It does mean hating less and fearing less. It doesn't, you know, equanimity is not about indifference. It's about deeply caring, but deeply equally caring. We, we become intoxicated, you know, it is, it is not that caring is a problem or that loving is a problem, but we can become so intoxicated equally by loving and by hating, can't we? And, and uh, the Czech playwright even said, you know, that uh, love, love and hate share a common bond, the intoxication with love and hate share a common bond, that in both we become obsessed with the object of our passions and actually cede autonomy to the object of our passions. So we get shattered by both love and hate and that seeding of that poise and that balance and being equally near. A student who once described to me what they went through as they saw their child um, disappear into addiction and as loving, any loving parent would, they did everything that they could to, to help their child, to care for them, to be there, and never abandoned them. They said, and yet their child became more and more uh, addicted. Um, he said he, he went into an art gallery and he saw a painting on the wall of a mother standing by the side of a river watching as her child was swept away on the current. And he said in this painting, the mother had no arms. And he, he said this was such a revelation to him to watch, to see this painting and to acknowledge what it is to stand there in the face of what we cannot always save and we cannot always fix to stand there with compassion, to stand there with care, to stand there with a steadiness of heart that isn't broken. And again, John has translated a few Singhalese phrases that I think express this very clearly. This is a life is but a play of joy and sorrow. And may I remain unshaken by life's rise and fall. 
that I care for you deeply, but you are the parent of your acts and their consequences, and sadly I cannot protect you from distress. And I want to stress in the, those phrases, two of them. First, I care for you deeply, and sadly I cannot protect you from distress. I mean, we know, we know, that another person in our life, no matter how deeply they care for us, they really don't have the power to change the courses of our own heart and mind, do they? It is in our hands. It's only in our hands. They can love us, they can support us, but they cannot make our choices for us. This is in our hands. We are the parents of our acts and their consequences. These are not words of blame. They're simply acknowledging how it is. We can care deeply for other people, and yet we also know that we cannot change the course of their hearts and minds. Again, it is in their hands. We can offer all of the support, all of the love, and in the end, sometimes all we can do is be compassionately and kindly and steadfastly present in the midst of it all. Equanimity is, is so rooted in, in understanding our relationship to change. It's acknowledging the limits of our control and power. It teaches us to keep showing up no matter how, how things are. And it teaches us most deeply the emptiness of selfing the emptiness of selfing, and I, I think Chris might go into this more. And to come back to metta, because this, metta is really the foundation of all of these qualities in the discourses. It is the only one of these pathways that merits its own discourse, because nothing is possible without this first step of befriending, of standing near to, of standing close to, of learning to, to, yes, it's simply that. I, I like this idea of standing near to. You know, sometimes we, we have to determine with discernment how safe it is, how, just how near it is we should stand. Sometimes we have to stand a little bit further back. Sometimes we stand very close. But there is always, always this intention to be friend, this intention to be a friend and I want to read to you the Metta Discourse. Some of you will be familiar with this. This is what is to be done to reach the peaceful state, and one could read that as awakening. One skilled in the good should be capable and upright, easy to speak to and straightforward of gentle nature and not proud, contented and easily supported, living lightly and having few duties, wise and with senses calmed, not arrogant and without greed, and should not do the slightest thing that the wise would reproach them for, and should reflect in this way, may all beings be happy and secure, may all beings be happy-minded, Whatever living beings there may be, whether weak or strong, tall, large, medium or short, small or big, 
seen or unseen, near or distant, born or to be born, may they, without exception, all be happy-minded. Let no one despise another or deceive anyone anywhere. Let no one, through anger or through hatred, wish for another's suffering. As a mother would risk her own life to protect her child, her only child, so for all beings one should guard one's boundless heart. With boundless friendliness for the whole world should one cultivate a boundless heart in all directions, without obstruction, without hate, and without ill will. Standing or walking, sitting or lying down, whenever one is awake, may one stay with this recollection. This is called the best and the most sublime way of dwelling in this world. One who is virtuous, endowed with insight, not clinging to wrong view, and having overcome our passion for sensual pleasure, will not come to lie in a womb again. This basically means the fruition of the path. Now, as I mentioned, you know, there's so clear in this discourse that metta is not about some emotion, it's not about some state. It is about establishing the heart that is not obstructed by ill will, not obstructed by aversion. It is without exception. It requires profound insight and I think profound training for us to commit to a way of being in this world that is not colored by ill will. But the Buddha put it so clearly that this, qual- this way of being, this is the heart of a healthy family, this is the heart of a healthy society, this is the heart of healthy communities, this is the heart of a wise and skillful relationship to ourselves. It is the most ethical way of being. And sometimes when the Buddha speaks about ethics, he says, words, acts, and thoughts of metta. Words, acts, and thoughts of metta. And this is quite really a genuine commitment, a genuine commitment to, to knowing the obstructions to metta as it arises primarily in the phase force of aversion, phase of aversion or ill will, and committing ourselves to not making aversion our home, but to make our home in that abiding in that intention. Which is why I mentioned the other evening, you know, although you know we are using this most traditional, more traditional unfoldment of meta practice through the human domains, this is not the only place where our hearts are obstructed by aversion, is it? You know, aversion can be triggered by so many events and so many circumstances, which is why I feel it is so deeply, deeply important to make metta relational to what is present. That may I be peaceful in the midst of this. May I live with ease and with kindness in the midst of this. We're not talking about some disconnected, some dissociated, idealized state. We're talking about a way of being and a way of relating to that which is difficult, that which is painful. Establishing (coughs) our capacity for metta, our capacity for befriending. This is the ground, this is the ground upon which empathy grows upon which there's a refinement of our intentions to to uproot the causes of suffering this 
ground of metta is, is the ground of standing near to, standing close to, is certainly the ground upon which joy grows. And it's the place where we really learn to find this unshakable balance and poise in the midst of all things. And the Buddha spoke about these qualities and the capacity for bringing these qualities to fruition. He wasn't speaking about a select few or a spiritually elite. He was speaking about the genuine capacity of every human heart and of our minds and hearts for a really unshakable liberation which is embodied, which is embodied in and immeasurable kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. So thank you for your attention. If we have just a moment quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.